Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the January 2000 edition of the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Victoria Clark about Zionism and the American evangelical community. Directly, what has happened um, in these seven years of Bush's presidency, I think, is that the concerns of the Christian Zionists have managed to dovetail absolutely neatly with a few other factors, which means that taken together, they, they, they really contribute quite something. And Daniel Solov about how the permanent and global nature of the Internet is affecting people's reputations. Uh, and so the generation currently growing up is really the first generation that is blogging and using these sites, and the first generation where the gossip and information that was that's circulating about them in high school and college is going to stay with them online in a publicly available form. Uh, they haven't fully yet experienced the consequences of this. Stay tuned. Zionism has existed as a political movement since the 19th century, reaching its zenith in 1948 with the creation of the State of Israel. In her new book, Allies for Armageddon, The Rise of Christian Zionism, journalist Victoria Clark looks at the shifting rationales of Christian support for a Jewish homeland, from the ethical and real politic arguments of the 19th and early 20th centuries, to a far more troubling support as a step towards an apocalypse predicted in the New Testament. Victoria Clark is a freelance journalist and writer who is formerly the Moscow bureau chief for The Observer. Victoria Clark, thanks for taking time to talk to the Yale Press podcast today. In your book, Allies for Armageddon, you talk about two different kinds of Christian Zionists, a millennial Christian Zionist and humanitarian Christian Zionist. Could you explain what separates them? Well, shortly, millennial Christian Zionists are the ones who are currently in the United States, especially having a good deal of influence over the Western foreign policy in the Middle East. So that would be the millennial Christian Zionists. And they have in mind the idea that, according to their reading of the Bible, the world is heading into its end times, and there are a number of things that have got to happen before the end of the world can happen, and Christ will come again, which is the desired um, result of all this mayhem. And uh, so they are quite uh, accepting of the need for large wars in the Middle East, and um, n- no prospect of peace until Jesus comes again. So that would be the millennial Christian Zionist outlook. The other kind of Christian Zionist, the humanitarian Christian Zionists, I would really say were having some influence in mid-19th century Britain. Uh, they were people who felt very strongly that anti-Semitism in Europe was on the rise and that it was time to give Jews a place in the world, a land of their own, where they could be safe and manage their own affairs. And so their impulse was empathetic and sympathetic and 
um, humanitarian. That's what I would say. And, and an obvious uh, example of a humanitarian Christian Zionist would be, for example, um, George Eliot, the writer, who wrote Daniel Deronda in the mid-19th um, century, which was a very influential book. So what got you interested in this topic? Well, um, I think, as is the way with a lot of writers, one book leads you on into another. And my third book was about the various types of Christian who have influenced affairs in the Holy Land, um, really from from Byzantine times to today. And of course, that story ended up, to my surprise, at the time that I set about the book, I wasn't sure what I was going to find, but that story ended up with the Christian Zionist influence in Israel today, and uh, their hopes for Jerusalem. And um, I thought, my goodness, this is a much bigger story than I could possibly tell here in this book. So... I'd like to find out more and, and go back to its roots in 17th century Britain and tell it properly. So that was really how it came about. The book certainly does follow the whole idea of Christian Zionism from, as you mentioned, the, uh, the late by middle 17th century leading up into today. I find the humanitarian uh, Christian Zionists interesting, but certainly not that controversial. The millennials a lot more controversial than the humanitarians. Here in the States, a lot of people that follow the evangelical community are aware of a term called the rapture. Um, a lot of people see the left-behind books and things like that. And I thought you'd give a very interesting discussion about where the idea of the rapture actually came from. Well, I mean, people who believe in it today would, would point you to a couple of places in the Bible, which, if you wanted to understand it that way, you could understand it as meaning that before the end times get too much into their stride with too much horror and war and pestilence and so forth, um, Jesus will look down and see the people who are true Christians, true believers in him, and whisk them up to heaven to be with him, to uh, have a ringside seat, as it were, on what's, what's happening down below and all the horror. And um, those people will, will, will be saved. So it's a sort of, um, I've always seen it as a kind of lucky loophole, you know, for the real believing Christian. There is this this hope that they won't have to either suffer normal death and pain and all the rest of it, or suffer these dreadful end times, which are just going to be so appalling. I know uh, reading Revelations to a degree takes some, you know, there's a lot of interpretation that goes on to it. Uh, that question of the rapture, I mean, is there anything really explicit in the text, in the in the gospel, which says this is going to happen? Or is there a little bit of, well, how should I put this, rather uh, creative interpretation as to how the rapture is going to occur? Well, as, as so often with the Bible, there are things that if you want to look at it literally, you can get a plain message. But of course, there's nothing in the Bible which says, um, you know, suddenly airplanes will fall out of the sky and cars will crash all over the freeways and, and so forth, which is how it's been popularly interpreted today. Um, what it is is uh, talk about um, people being whisked up to the air in, a, in the twinkling of an eye or something, as usual, beautifully poetic Bible language, but um, very, very, very much open to interpretation, and it's a very long stretch to get from that to, to thinking about, you know, um, people lo losing their loved ones, as they do at the beginning of the Left Behind series. People are just whisked out half out of an airplane, half the airplane is empty, because the rest are not true believers, and therefore they're left behind to suffer everything. Um, and, and the lucky ones get get raptured out of the airplane. It's a very funny idea, really. 
but um, as if taken to a ludicrous conclusion. You know, the Left Behind books leads me to um, something else I got out of your book I found kind of interesting, which is beyond the spiritual energy which drives Christian Zionists, uh, there's a lot of uh, economic power that drives this as well. How big a business and what kind of is the business of Christian Zionism? Well, it's what I've tried to do in the book is to show how it's operating on a number of different levels and in a number of different areas. And on the one hand, that makes it look like a very diffused phenomenon. On the other hand, once you begin to understand the people who are involved and the kind of businesses and so forth, then you see that actually it's a very, very well-organized, well well-run phenomenon, if you like, ideology. Or as, as one of my um, reviewers has put it, a cult, um, and you could see it like that. But um, for example, one of the, one side of the business of Christian Zionism is the um, Holy Land tours, for example. That's very, very big business. Hundreds of thousands of people every year go on tours to the Holy Land with uh, Christian Zionist um, pastors who link up there with. Uh, right-wing Israelis who make sure that one side of the whole Middle East problem is presented and not the other side. So uh, that business-wise, that benefits these churches as well as, as the Israelis hugely. So that's one, one business you could point to. Then, of course, there's the whole publishing um, industry, which is huge for Christian Zionism. If you go to um, Christian bookstores, you'll see a large number of books with Armageddon, Jerusalem, um, sort of uh, pictures of exploding um, Dome of the Rock and that sort of thing. And that that is all Christian Zionist um, literature, and masses of it, really masses of it. And not only um, semi-historical or political, but also uh, fictional. So, um, the Left Behind series, of course, is a case in point that sold 66 million copies or something, um, making its writers a fortune. So that's that's another side of it. Another side would be um, prophecy conferences, which is a, a, a rather lucrative little sideline where there's a, an army of about, I would reckon, maybe 50 or 60 popular speakers on Christian Zionism um, who go around the country attending prophecy conferences and talking about um, their whatever they're into, which is, you know, the imminent destruction of the temple in Jerusalem or um, their particular Christian Zionist take on the Bible. They're good entertainers. They take up a nice collection. Um, they sell their books as well. That's a little money maker. Um, other sort of areas, those sort of uh, big big charities, of course. Um, there's one called the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, which is actually masterminded by a, a rabbi um, who is not a converted to Christianity, but most of the people in the fellowship are Christians, and that's a huge enterprise that he's developed there. Again, the, the Israelis benefit from that because a lot of money going to Israel from as charity from this um, organization. And then there are the people who willingly donate to um, supporting the settlements in the occupied territories, 
which is actually against uh, UN directives, against um, American um, policy, against NATO policy, etc., etc. But that is something that they do as well, um, funding uh, security um, for those settlements, paying for a secure p- playground for the kids, that kind of stuff, ambulances. In some of the profiles that you uh, bring in the book, I seem to get a sense that uh, a lot of the discussions that go on in these conferences where the people are coming is the uh, – you get a lot of, I guess I would say, discussions about how the degree that Christian Zionists and these organizations are really affecting the geopolitical actions on the ground in Israel and the Middle East. Do they actually have any power? Well, what has happened uh, – I'd, I'd say that uh, you know when, when they first became a, a quite big – phenomenon, which was, I would say, the time of uh, Carter and Reagan, when you had characters like uh, Falwell, Hull, Lindsay, um, big, big Christian Zionists coming to the fore. You, it was debatable, really, what, what influence they had exactly, except that uh, Falwell had his moral majority, so, and that was a sort of bastion, of course, for um, Reagan, so it helped in a way. But directly, what has happened um, in these seven years of Bush's presidency, I think, is that the concerns of the Christian Zionists have managed to dovetail absolutely neatly with a few other factors, which means that taken together, they they really contribute quite something. So those principal factors are that 9-11 happened, and that fits their vision of a a mighty bust-up between forces of good and evil, evil represented by um, Islam and the Arabs, um, and good, of course, by Western civilization. So that's one thing that has played into their hands very easily. Another thing has been that Israel has been uh, in want of friends, really, since this second intifada, um, and it has meant that right-wing Israelis have become very aware that there is this huge constituency of Christian support in America to um, take advantage of and um, benefit by. So that they have been extremely busy um, promoting Christian Zionist ideas and um, priorities. And then you could say that uh, the foreign policy pursued by, by Bush with his uh, neoconservative advisers has um, really struck exactly the right chord with this Christian Zionist lot, and vice versa. You know, they've backed each other up, and we're talking about millions and millions of um, Republican voters whose foreign policy priority, because of what they feel about the Bible and the end times, is is Israel. That that. That's the sort of hub around which everything else is revolving. So they they tend to base their feelings about the Iraq war or what's to be done about Iran or what's to be done about conciliating Syria or whoever it is, according to what uh, Israel would like in that sense. So it's, it, I think it is a very powerful constituency, which, which of course, is, is unknown in, in Europe. Um, and I think once people in, on this side of the Atlantic understand the, those priorities of that number of Christians, um, it, they begin to see why it is that there's a rather big gap in sympathy at the moment 
between um, you know the Bush politics and um, the rest of Europe's politics. Allies for Armageddon: The Rise of Christian Zionism is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Victoria Clark, go to www.yalebooks.com/podcast. Chat rooms, blogs, social networking sites. All these features of the internet in the 21st century allow people to gather and communicate in new and exciting ways. Unfortunately, given the permanence and global reach of the internet, unflattering or scandalous news about you, whether true or untrue, can be almost impossible to remove and can follow you for the rest of your life. In his new book, The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet, Daniel Solov wonders what are some of the ramifications of having a 24-hour global conversation about people's actions and whether the idea of privacy has been irrevocably changed. Daniel Solov is an associate professor at the George Washington University School of Law. Daniel Solov, thanks for taking time to talk to the Yale Press podcast today. Your book, The Future of Reputation, looks at how the Internet is affecting notions of privacy and norm enforcement. But as I was reading it, I was thinking, to what degree is the Internet just like a current incarnation of a process that's been going on for quite a while? Well, I think the Internet is um, a... It's certainly an extension of the computer age and development of computers, but uh, I do think that it uh, has some new features that we've never really experienced before, in particular the ability of anybody uh, to be able to use it to uh, communicate with each other and to express themselves to a worldwide audience, which is something that um, the ordinary person could never do before. Is also the I thought the question of permanence that you brought out. You know, even with newspapers or books to some degree, they they would kind of fade from public consciousness, or it might be hard to find something that was defamatory and invasion of privacy. And now with the internet, that's a record that kind of follows you around for the rest of your life, essentially. Exactly. Uh, before, if something appeared about you in a newspaper, you would have to track it down to a local library. Finding information was very difficult because there was practical obscurity. Things existed in a physical form, and you had to know where that thing, that object was, uh, to be able to find it. And so very few people could actually get that information. Uh, The Internet brings information to our fingertips, which is both wonderful and also terrifying. I think it's wonderful because there's so easy to find things, so easy to obtain information uh, very easily from anywhere around the world, be it books, newspapers, um, whatever. When it comes to uh, information that's about individuals, however, um, it creates some terrifying uh, possibilities, and that is that information that would ordinarily have been obscure, that would ordinarily have been forgotten, or that ordinarily would be collecting dust in some library, is now available at anybody's fingertips uh, who does a Google search on a person. And this makes the personal information about people uh, much more accessible and uh, available anywhere that person might go, even after the person moves to a different location, uh, which ordinarily would mean that information would fade over time, especially if the person moved away. But now a person could move around the world, and wherever that person went, 
you do a Google search on their name, and that information pulls up. Isn't there also a question of the vetting process? I know when you talk a little bit about Wikipedia versus you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica, even though there, most of the information on Wikipedia is correct, there are some things that slip in there because bloggers and the Wikipedia, these are not necessarily professionals that you can say, okay, I know there was a vetting process that went through there. Then you talk about some examples where information got through that was patently false and it was really tricky for people to get it down. Yes. Uh, one of the things about the Internet is that the information that you find on the net is a mixture of fact and fiction. Uh, there's a lot of good information, which is enough to seduce you into believing a lot of what you might read on the Internet. Because if it were all false, we wouldn't really trust anything. Uh, but the information has a lot of truth, but there's also falsehood that's mixed into that information. The problem is that uh, a lot of the folks who put information up are doing so anonymously. And so uh, they're not staking any particular reputation uh, by putting that information up. Uh, so if it's wrong, they don't suffer any consequences. Uh, unlike the staff at an encyclopedia or the staff at a newspaper, they don't risk getting fired or terminated or punished or demoted for uh, create, doing shoddy reporting or getting the facts wrong. Uh, so there's very little to vet or control the quality of information that we're receiving. And as a result, I think we receive information that is somewhat, sometimes very uh, correct and accurate, but sometimes incredibly incorrect and inaccurate. Well, the book, Future Reputation, really does, in some ways, it made me... Very, it made me rethink about how much how much of my personal information I put out on the internet, and I think I do a pretty good job. But I did change some things after reading the book, mainly because of these issues of privacy. And I thought one of the more interesting questions that you ask um, is: Is the next generation, say people that are in college or high school, do they have a completely different idea of what privacy is compared to an older generation? Do they even believe privacy exists anymore? That's a tough question to answer. I think because the ideas of privacy of the generation growing up are currently being shaped uh, right before our eyes. Uh, blogs and social network websites have really become popular in the past three or four years, uh, and uh, prior to that uh, there were some around, but, but not as uh, wildly popular as they are today. Uh, and so the generation currently growing up is really the first generation that is blogging and using these sites and the first generation where the gossip and information that was that's circulating about them in high school and college is going to stay with them online in a publicly available form. Uh, they haven't fully yet experienced the consequences of this. Um, no generation, uh, to my knowledge, has ever lived with so much personal information about them freely available on the Internet. Uh, and so what is the impact this is going to have on their views of privacy, I think it's a hard question to ask. I think we can look to certain things that uh, they do and have expressed to understand a bit of what they might be currently thinking about privacy. Um, one thing to preface that is that privacy, I think, is an evolving uh, attitude and, and view. And so someone who might be very open uh, about their life uh, uh, when they're younger, might later regret that and come to view the value of privacy later on. And so I think currently, though, we are seeing a lot of the young uh, uh, 
high school kids and college students uh, putting up massive amounts of personal information online. And so at first blush, you might say, well, they don't really value privacy. After all, they're putting up uh, all sorts of uh, very intimate details about their lives, their relationships, their friendships, uh, their dating, their sex life, their uh, consumption of alcohol and, and drugs and partying and everything uh, is, is up there. Uh, so the easy answer is, well, they don't seem to expect privacy. But I think that we need to temper that with, First, they're very young, and uh, their judgments might really change dramatically later on in life. Uh, when they have children, they might not want their children to see their uh, websites, and, and when they uh, suffer some possible uh, uh, missed employment opportunities or lost job opportunities, they might decide uh, to regret uh, some of this uh, information. Uh, but that even then, even at the, 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 even at the current uh, state, uh, there was a very interesting uh, incident that happened with Facebook uh, last year. Facebook decided to create a new feature called News Feeds. And the way this feature worked was that any time a user created a change in uh, their profile, uh, the News Feeds would alert all that person's friends. The result was that people uh, really had this big up uproar over privacy. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Facebook users uh, protested online with a site meaning about this. Uh, someone might say, well, why would there be a big privacy uh, dust-up over this? Because, first of all, all the information in news feeds was just information that people put on their public profiles. So it was available already. And uh, these are young users of Facebook who are not shy about putting a lot of personal information online. Why would they even be concerned about privacy? But what we learned was, and what I think is uh, interesting about this incident, is it demonstrates that there's a somewhat different notion of privacy that the Facebook users had. Uh, in the past, we've often seen privacy as hiding uh, our intimate secrets, hiding uh, deep secrets and keeping them away from the public. But that's not the kind of privacy that these users wanted. They didn't want to keep information completely hidden. But they didn't like news feeds. And the reason they didn't like news feeds was because it made information more accessible. Uh, in other words, if I want to change my Facebook profile, I can do that. And obviously, the earlier version was public, and the new version's public. But um, I've made a change, and I might want the change to float under the radar. If I make a change, I, I might not want that change announced to all my friends so that they know, OK, um, I took off so-and-so as my best friend on the profile. And now everybody knows that. Sometimes you want to make a quiet change. Uh, so the idea of obscurity, again, that little changes in one's profile would ordinarily be obscure because no one would really be monitoring uh, the profile every day. But news feeds took that obscurity away and made things more accessible. And that's what people got very upset about. Uh, so there's a nuanced understanding of privacy that I think uh, the younger generations feel already, which is that they want control 
they view privacy as degrees of access in a much more nuanced way than keeping a secret versus letting a secret out. Uh, and so I think that there are, people do care about privacy, uh, but I think that that views of privacy are changing. Now, what does the future hold? What does the future hold for a generation that um, has this unprecedented amount of information on the Internet? Um, it's hard to say. Uh, it could be that in 10, 20 years, they, no one really cares. Everyone has information online, and people are comfortable with that. Um, or it could be something where there's a lot of people who regret it, where the information hurt some people because uh, some people were unlucky and had bad information about them online uh, put there by themselves or by a friend or by an enemy, and they're going to be uh, hurt or injured uh, in the future. I think that's uh, what the future is going to hold. I don't think that uh, people will just stop expecting privacy. Uh, stop caring about privacy. Uh, so I, I think that, uh, but that's a speculation. It could very well be that, uh, uh, you know, people just become more exhibitionist and more out in the open. Uh, but at least from my uh, study of human behavior and of privacy in the past, I, I think that the, the former uh, view, where people still do care about privacy, although it just becomes trickier and more challenging and more nuanced understandings. That's what I think is, is, is going to happen. The Future Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Daniel Solov, go to www.yalebook.com podcast. I know it's January. You're getting bills from credit card companies for all of your holiday purchases. Tax information is popping up in your mailbox. What is a committed bibliophile to do? Where can the bargains be found? Well, grapple with this no further, because Yale always has you covered with our books on sale, with some up to 50% off. Just go to www.yalebooks.com, look for the sale banner, and sleep easy knowing that high-quality, low-cost books are merely a mouse click away. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites, or go to the Yale Press website www.yalebooks.com slash podcast and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. My name is Chris Gondak, and if any comments about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer, and my name is Chris Gondak. I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2008. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.